There we go. Rav Liebens, before you begin, I just want to say um, uh, on behalf of everybody, thank you so much. Uh, I have to say the feedback that we've been getting has wow. been fantastic. Uh, thank you. Really, really, really fantastic. And uh, when Rabbi Dweck was talking about including philosophy and logic as part of the curriculum, he said it's very important for us to not just know what to think, but how to think. And I think this series uh, is really helping us learn how to think. <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. So really, really looking forward to part three. And as I've told you privately, and I've told the members, this is just the beginning with the work <laughs> that you're going to have to do for us. Thank you. So um, get ready, because we're going to be harassing you for <laughs> many years. Well, it's to come. my pleasure. I, I, I'm so thrilled to know that there is a, a Torah community that, um, that values um, the, the values, the things that we've been talking about in this course. Okay, so um, the the third part, we, we I, I was hoping in this course to introduce you to some of the main areas of philosophy. I, I think the most noteworthy omission, uh, because we only having three sessions, um, is the side of philosophy where we we try to figure out how we should live, right? Um, and those areas they're called normative philosophy. It includes ethics, which which thinks about you know good and bad action. It also includes political philosophy, uh, which which talks about not just how you and I should act, but how societies or governments should act. So um, so ethics and political philosophy, which which together uh, constitute this this branch of philosophy known as normative philosophy. That's the, the one kind of major area of philosophical concern that we're not going to touch on in this um, um, in this series, although it's clearly very uh, important. In fact, uh, Rasag Sajigaon um, argues that um, Elihu in the book of Eov, he says, come, let, let's get together and consider how we should be. Or something along those lines, as Elihu in one of the, the, the earlier discourses of Elihu in the book of, of, of Job, say for Eog. And Sajagan takes that to, to mean that, that wise and, and, um, and praiseworthy people, because Sajagan takes Elihu in particular, uh, after, only after Job in the book of Job, to be a person worthy of praise, is that wise and praiseworthy people, um, even though we follow Jewish law, so we know how we should act, Jewish law tells us to act, Nonetheless, it's important for us to think abstractly about what does it mean to do a good action? What does it mean to do a bad action? What is it that makes good actions good? What is it that makes bad actions bad? So that would be the more, like I said, normative or ethical side of philosophy. Our first class was on logic, uh, which kind of looks at the nuts and bolts of, of, of reasoning. And um, I, I saw the message, don't worry, it's in there. And the... Um, that, so, so, so the first class was on logic, which looks at the nuts and bolts of reason. The second class was on metaphysics, which I told you is very difficult to define, and I'm not sure I know how to define it. But the thing I'm most satisfied with saying is that metaph metaphysics looks at bringing together all of the various sciences, chemistry, biology, uh, social sciences, physics, uh, um, uh, sorry, psychology, uh, sociology, uh, what, what, you know, history, all of the various disciplines in the university, bring them all together and then try to reconcile them all into a fundamental description of reality, a unified, coherent, fundamental description of everything there is to describe. That would be the, the ultimate goal of metaphysics. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about epistemology, um, 
which which I will move on to in the next slide to explain what does that mean? What, what is epistemology, right? Before we get there, I, I wanted to say, and I, I was gonna say it earlier and I forgot, is that um, it's my honor to dedicate um, th th this session together, this, this learning um, in the memory, the memory of Shoshana Bat Miriam, um, whose uh, arayat is this evening, I take it. Um, so please God, um, the, the endeavor to refine our minds, um, not merely for the intellectual joy of refining our minds, but in order to make ourselves receptacles, kalim, that will be uh, um, better prepared to know um, and to experience the presence of God in our lives. Um, this endeavor, which I believe is a holy endeavor, it should be an, uh, um, an, an aliyah for her neshama and uh, her family should have comfort. Okay, so we're going to speak in, in, in this part about, like I said, epistemology. What is epistemology other than a long word? Okay, um, the long word epistemology, ology always means like the study of something, right? So what we need to know is what does episteme mean? And um, I'll tell you, it, it, it's um, the Greek word for knowledge. So epistemology is literally the study of knowledge. What does that mean, the study of knowledge? Like, isn't all study knowledge, isn't like the game, the, the aim of all study knowledge? Yes, the aim of all study is knowledge. But what we want to know when we study epistemology is what is knowledge, right? What does it mean to know something? Okay. And there, there are very, there are, you know, that's, that's literally the meaning of epistemology. But there are some various questions which are so intimately related to the question of what is knowledge that it also counts as epistemology. For example, what is belief? Because there are some things you merely believe, but you know that you don't know them, right? You, I, like you have a hunch, you, you might even be willing to bet a certain amount of money that something is true because you kind of believe it, but you wouldn't bet your house on it. Why wouldn't you bet your house? Because, well, first of all, gambling is not moral, but we, we're not talking about ethics today. Um, why wouldn't you bet? Why, why wouldn't you bet your house? You wouldn't bet your house because even though you'd bet like a hundred pounds, because you're pretty confident, you know, there's at the back of your mind, there's a kind of a, 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 a seed of doubt that you might be wrong and you're not willing to say that you know it, you believe it. So there's a difference between belief and knowledge. What is the difference? Is Does knowledge require certainty? And if, if knowledge doesn't require certainty, because maybe we're not certain about very much at all, right? Loads of things in our lives are open to doubt, right? That um, the, the, the enemy of most philosophers is called the skeptic, the person who says, I don't know anything. Everything could just be an illusion. Everything could just be a dream. So if we demand certainty, if we say, oh, there's no such thing as knowledge, unless you're certain, and it probably turns out we know very little. And we, we tend to use the word knowledge a bit more liberally than that, right? We say we know all sorts of things uh, that we're not certain of. So the, the philosophically interesting question is, what do we mean by knowledge? What do we mean by belief? And what's the difference between the two? What do you have to add to a belief in order to make it knowledge? Interesting. Um, these two questions are clearly related to rationality, right? All sorts of people have all sorts of beliefs. But some beliefs are really stupid and some some beliefs are so stupid that they're culpably stupid right you i blame you for believing that that's how stupid it is right and if you have a culpably stupid belief uh, that's a type of irrationality we call it epistemic irrationality right because 
your belief forming processes must be really bad uh, if you if you believe those things, whatever they might be. Um, but there's there's actually two types of rationality. One type of rationality is about forming beliefs, right? When should you form a belief and when shouldn't you? When should you disbelieve things? Uh, that's one type of rationality, call it epistemic rationality. There's another type of rationality called pragmatic rationality or practical rationality. And that's talking about, um, are your decisions good decisions given your goals? So for instance, you know, if I wanted to get rich, if that was my goal, becoming a philosopher was a very bad decision. Okay, so, so, so practical rationality is interested in uh, um, figuring out what makes a decision a good decision, given your goals. Your goals might be different to my goals, right? I clearly didn't um, have getting rich as my primary goal. Uh, I had other, other goals as my primary goals. But practical rationality isn't interested in uh, um, saying which goals are good, which goals are bad. We say, tell me what your goals are, and I'll tell you you know, whether your decisions have been rational or irrational. Uh, so epistemic rationality, again, is about forming beliefs well. Practical rationality is about making decisions well. But both of those, broadly speaking, do fall under this topic, epistemology. Faith, okay? In the Hebrew language, we don't tend to make a distinction, both in biblical Hebrew and in... Um, in modern Hebrew, in Ivrit, we don't, so as, as, as they would say in an Ashkenazi country, the difference between biblical Hebrew and, and, and Ivrit is it's Ivris and Ivrit, right? Um, but that joke doesn't work in a Sephardi congregation. Um, okay, but um, um, in, in both biblical Hebrew and uh, contemporary Ivrit, we don't really make a distinction between belief and faith. It's anima amin. Would you translate that into English? What does that mean? We're believers, children of believers, or we are faithers. We are people of faith, right? Children of people of faith. What's the difference between belief and faith? Is there a difference between belief and faith? There's a big machloket between Rashi and the Ramban on the verse in uh, Sefer Bereshit that says, um, which means he had faith in God and it was considered unto him as righteousness. It's talking about Abraham, right? Now, Rashi reads it to mean Abraham had faith in God and because he had faith in God, God was like, good one, Abraham, you're righteous, right? God considered Abraham righteous in virtue of having faith. The Ramban, Nachmanides, doesn't understand this at all. So it's like, uh, there's, there's nothing virtuous in Abraham believing in God. Like Abraham had seen open miracles. God had spoken to Abraham. Like he'd have been ridiculous of Abraham not to have believed in God. And in actual fact, the Ramban views that verse very differently. He would translate it this way. Abraham believed in God. Why? Why did Abraham believe in God? Because Abraham considered God to be righteous. Is it was Abraham considering God to be righteous, not God considering Abraham to be righteous. Major disagreement. As they would say in Yeshiva, what's behind this argument between Rashi and, and the Ramban? 
I'll tell you what I think. Rashi reads the word vehemin as Avraham had faith. And the Ramban reads vehemin as Avraham believed. Believing uh, isn't all that um, impressive a thing. You, you believe because you have evidence and you don't believe if you don't have evidence. Having faith, according to Rashi, it seems to me, is something different to, to merely believing. But we'll, we'll get back to that later. Uh, the difference between faith and belief would be a, quest, a question of, if, indeed, if there is a difference, would be a question of epistemology. Okay, so you've got some idea of what epistemology is, the sorts of questions we're thinking about. So if you think about like this, here's what the philosopher wants to do. First of all, we want to figure out what, what counts as a good argument, what counts as a bad argument. That's logic. Then what we want to do is come up with competing theories of the world, right? Uh, um, and ultimately, that's metaphysics. Metaphysics comes up with competing theories of the world. And the normative branches of philosophy that we're not talking about in this series, ethics and political uh, um, philosophy, want to come up with a description of our obligations and duties, individually and collectively. But then along comes the epistemologist, and so it's all very well that you know what a good argument is. And it's all very well that you've got all these competing theories. But which theories should we believe? Right, because what constitutes rational belief, right? What constitutes good enough evidence to believe something, right? And those are the questions that are left over to the epistemologist. So what I'm gonna do in this session, hopefully we have time, um, I'm gonna show you um, one major um, controversy or, or even puzzle of contemporary epistemology. And by contemporary epistemology, I really mean over the last kind of half a century of epistemology. And then um, if we have time in, in the last few slides, I wanna come back to a more niche area of epistemology, but perhaps more important to us as, as people of, of faith, which is this question I raised uh, 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 just a minute ago about the distinction between belief and faith. It's not one that too many epistemologists are worried about, but there is some literature about it. It is something philosophers uh, are continuing to address. By the way, if you're in a, if you're in a Hebrew university, they've, they've had to cre create um, a distinction that's kind of artificial in Ivrit to mark this distinction between faith and belief. And they, they, they say emunah is faith and ha'amana is, is belief. Uh, or at least that's how they say it. that's how they do it in Haifa but in Jerusalem apparently they do it the other way around so it's a real mess anyway uh, <laughs> uh, faith and belief okay um, oh trust we're not going to talk about that today either but trust is a massive issue in epistemology who should you trust most of what you believe you believe because somebody told you Right, you read it in the newspaper, or your parents told you, or your chachamim told you, or someone told you. Who should you trust? It's a major, major issue of, of epistemology. Okay. Um, all right. In order to understand um, that this major, major issue of the last half century of epistemology, you need to go back to ancient Greece and you need to do that for almost everything in philosophy, okay? As Alfred North Whitehead said in the middle of the last century, uh, all of Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. And though that was a, a, a guzman, an exaggeration, a hyperbole, um, it wasn't far off the truth, okay? Now, Plato came up with 
a really hugely influential definition of knowledge. Okay, and I'm going to try and explain it to you. I'm not sure it's right, uh, but it's it's definitely worth entertaining, definitely worth thinking over seriously. Okay, so Plato says knowledge is composed of three more basic concepts. I can define knowledge because I can define it in terms of three more basic concepts. And those concepts are these. One, truth. So according to Plato, you can't know something that isn't true. Now, this sometimes confuses people because like, I know loads of things, but I could turn out to be wrong, right? Or like I used to know something and then I was corrected. No. Think carefully about the way we use the word no. We say things like, I thought, sinner, I thought I knew you, right? Um, but what I mean is, wow, you've so surprised, you know, I already knew you were a tzaddik, right? I knew you were a tzaddik, but, but now you've really shown me some, 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 some great level of tzidkut that, that I didn't expect even from you. I'd say, oh, I thought I knew you, but I was wrong, right? You, you, you were an even greater person than the person I thought you were, right? So in that situation, what that shows is, oh, I thought I knew you, but I didn't. Why didn't I know? Because what I thought wasn't true. And if it's not true, it can't be knowledge, right? So, you know, I, you know, I used to think, um, you know, I used to think P, but now I know better. Why do I know better? Because P isn't true, right? Whatever P might be. We, we often think we know things when we don't. We can be wrong about what we know, so we can think we know things when we don't. But if you really do know it, then it must be true, because if it was false, you couldn't know it. <laughs> you could only think you know it. That's it, that's, that, it, you might not accept that, and not every philosopher accepts that, but that's, the, that's I'm trying to motivate this for you, to try to get you to feel, to kind of taste why Plato thought that was an attractive thing to say. Knowledge requires truth. Another way of saying that, if you want to sound really posh, if you want to sound like you know your philosophy, you say knowledge is factive. What that means is you can't know something that isn't a fact. Okay, we like making up words, right? Knowledge is factive. Okay, next. Really, the third ingredient shouldn't come second, but I'm only doing it in the order that it's known as, because it's known as the T. J B account truth justification is the second thing and B is belief right let's do it the other way around let me explain you can't know something that you don't believe right what does it mean that you know something could, could you say oh I know that but I don't believe it <laughs> what that mean right right I know that Paris is the capital of of France but I, I don't believe it I actually believe that Bordeaux is the capital of France but I know that Paris is the capital. That sounds odd. Now you can say things like, yeah, um, I know it. Can't I know a fairy tale? Well, when you, when you know a fairy tale, what you know is how the story goes. But, but you don't know that the things the story says happen. In fact, you don't believe they happen. It's a fairy tale. What you know is the shape of the story. But you, you know, you don't know that there is a person called Cinderella. There never was. You know, there's a fictional character called Cinderella. Can you have a scientific theory that you know, but you don't believe in? Again, you can know the theory by saying, like, I, I can, 
I can regurgitate the theory. I know what the theory is, but you can't know that the theory is true unless you also believe that it's true. Now, just to be careful, sometimes you say, oh, I don't believe it. But what you really mean is something like that's surprising. But you do believe it, right? <laughs> you know, like, oh, I can't believe it. No, if you couldn't believe it, then 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 you wouldn't be saying that, right? Right? <laughs> like, right? Uh, um, that's not a, that's a figure of speech, right? You say, yeah, oh, I know that Leicester won the Premier League in in 2016, but I still can't believe it, right? Yeah, okay, but that's a figure of speech. What you really mean is you you believe it, because if you if you didn't believe it, you certainly couldn't know it. You believe it. You know it, but you're still surprised by the fact you find yourself believing it and knowing it. So, so we've got two ingredients, the one on the left and the one on the right. Knowledge requires truth. Knowledge requires belief, but not any old belief that happens to be true is knowledge. Because you could know something and just, you could believe something by a kind of lucky guess, right? Um, Like, you, well, we'll see later on in really good examples of this, but you, you, could, you could have come to believe something, right? Let, let's imagine the following case, right? Um, you, you come to believe that, um, that Sam Lieben's um, is a philosopher, but you came to believe it um, by reading a novel um, that, that's not really about me. It's about a fictional person who happens to be called Sam Liebens, who's a philosopher. Well, you, you, you came to believe that Sam Liebens is a philosopher, but you didn't really know it because like the belief wasn't attached to the truth in quite the right way. It was kind of a lucky, it was kind of lucky you came about this belief. Um, and knowledge, knowledge requires something more than, than mere luck. Let's say you woke up in the morning and you say, I have a hunch. I have a hunch that tonight Sam is going to be speaking not from Haifa, but from Jerusalem. Inexplicably, you just woke up with that hunch. You found yourself believing it. Let me tell you, if that's the strange hunch you woke up with this morning, you were right. Uh, normally I'm, I'm in Netanya or Haifa, but today I'm in Jerusalem. Um, but you didn't know it. You just had a hunch. You found yourself believing it. What's this, what's this extra ingredient that you'd need to say, oh, I, it wasn't a hunch, I knew it. It's the true belief needs to be justified, okay? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the platonic, that's Plato apparently, is the platonic, they, they all look like they're made of marble, these, great, these Greek people. I, I don't know um, why that was, uh, um, bad photography or something. They all come out looking quite marble-like, uh, the Greeks. Anyway, um, there's, there's, there's Plato, and, and like with like, with bits fallen off often, he's doing quite well. Some people like, don't have noses and things. But anyway, um, um, that's the platonic definition of, of, um, of, of knowledge. The, 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 the most sustained platonic treatment of knowledge is in Plato's Theotetus, for those who want to go and read their Plato. Okay. Anyone think they understand? 
what we've what, how we've just right so simon okay simon's already asking the question that's going to be motivating the last half century of of epistemology which is like how much justification do you need like what counts as justification right this becomes you know one of the major one of the major questions of like i said 20th and, and indeed 21st century uh epistemology and this this starts with this chap called edmund gettier who passed away this year i believe and very early on in his career so it was you know if i'm not mistaken we could you could easily google it i i think it was late 50s or or or, or early 1960s he wrote a paper in epistemology it was just i think four sides of, of so it's two pages four sides a very short article by philosophical standards and it caused an earthquake in epistemology okay because what Gettier tried to do and I'll, I'll show you later he wasn't the first to do this he was the first to have been noticed doing it but what he what he tried to do was to show you cases of beliefs that really look like they're justified and they're true but they also don't seem to, to amount to what we would intuitively call knowledge. And the idea is these examples are su supposed to make you doubt that Plato was right. Okay. So I, I, I'll run through the two examples that Gettier came up with, and they're known as Gettier cases. And actually, I mean, I'll show my biases here. Bertrand Russell already had a Gettier case long before Gettier. And Russell's is better for all sorts of reasons, much more powerful. But Gettier got all the fame for this. I don't think people noticed uh, until Gettier that there's this problem with Plato. So here are the cases, okay? In the article, he keeps talking about Smith and Jones. So I thought I would use this, this picture here for, for those who, who remember uh, their British comedy, Smith and Jones, okay? Um, Gettier says, Smith and Jones both apply for a job, okay? Imagine that. Next, Smith believes that Jones will get the job. That's one thing Smith believes. Smith also believes that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. And the thing is, Smith has like really good evidence for his beliefs. Look at the evidence. First piece of evidence is the boss apologetically told Smith Took him to one side. Says, I'm really sorry. I know you've come for the interview, but Jones is going to get the job. That's good. That's pretty good evidence, right? That Jones is going to get the job. So Smith believes that Jones is going to get the job, and Smith has good evidence. It's a pretty pretty well justified belief. The other thing is, I don't know why Smith did this, but Smith counted the coins in Jones' pocket. And he was sitting with Jones the entire time. He saw that nobody put any other coins in the pocket. You know, there's, it, it's got really good reason to believe that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. So far, the story is quite simple, right? So Gettier says, well, if Smith believes that Jones will get the job, and if Smith believes that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket, then Smith also believes the following claim. The man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. And he's got good evidence for that belief too. 
Meaning the, the evidence that the man will, that, that Jones will get the job is, is what the boss told him. The evidence that, that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket is because he counted them. And so therefore he knows, you know, he believes that the man who's gonna get the job currently has 10 coins in his pocket. Fine, so far so good. Now imagine the following happens. Smith gets the job. Perhaps the boss changed his mind. And unbeknownst to Smith, because he didn't count how many coins he has in his own pocket, Smith has 10 coins in his pocket. Now, let's go through the, all of the cases, okay? All of the beliefs. Smith believes that Jones will get the job, right? That belief turns out to have been false. It was a false belief. It was justified. He had good reason for believing it, but it, it was false. Smith believes that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. That belief was justified and true because Jones uh, does have 10 coins in his pocket. Smith also believes that the man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. And that was true too. The man who would get the job did have 10 coins in his pocket and it was justified because the very things that justified his belief that Jones would get the, the, the job and the very evidence that justified that Jones had 10 coins in the pocket justified the belief that the man who will get the job had 10 coins in his pocket. But we don't want to say that Smith knew it. Even though the belief that the man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket was true and it was justified. It was a true justified belief. It wasn't knowledge. And the basic intuition people have is one way you could go is, is the way Simon went even before we raised this, this example. Like, yeah, but was it enough justification? Thus, I suppose it probably was enough justification because if, if Jones had got the job, we'd have said that Smith knew it. Smith knew that the man who would get the job had 10 coins in his pocket if it was Jones who got the job. It's because Smith got the job. So it's as if the justification and the truth aren't connected tightly enough somehow. That's the issue. Something between the, something to do with the, yes, that's one of the issues. The other issue is, okay, he believed that Jones will get the job. He believed that Jones had 10 coins in his pocket, but does that, does it follow that he believed that the man who gets the job would have 10 coins? Perhaps we were being too quick there because just because you believe something or just because you believe two things, it doesn't mean that you believe all of the things that those two things entail, right? Uh, very often it takes us a while to figure out what it is that our beliefs entail. So, okay, he believed that Jones would get the job. He believed that Jones had 10 coins in his pocket, but did he realize that that entails that the man who gets the job will have 10 coins in his pocket? Well, presumably he did realize that that entailed that. It's not like a really difficult uh, logical deduction to arrive at, but it's something you could poke at. Let me give you the second example, just because I'm trying to give you the flavor of these cases. 
so the question is, did Smith know that the man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket, right? Because it was him who got the job. He had no clue that he was going to get the job. And it was him who had 10 coins in his pocket. He had no clue that he had 10 coins in his pocket, but he did believe it. He believed that the man who would get the job had, would, had 10 coins in his pocket. And he had pretty good reason for believing it, right? But it doesn't seem like his knowledge. What's going wrong? That's the question. Okay, it's a cool, cool little puzzle, right? Um, let me just have a look at what people are saying. Dov has a worry about, about circularity. We'll come back to it when we, when we look at some of the, the suggested answers to the puzzle. But you're right. We don't want to define justification in, in a way that's, that's circular. Good point. Uh, Mikey says, but the man getting the job, something will happen in the future. So how is that true or false yet? Yeah, that's a very nice, that's a very nice uh, uh, problem to raise. I agree with you. I'm on the side of Aristotle. I think that future tense sentences are neither true nor false. So it wasn't a true belief because the future hadn't happened yet. Very nice. That might be a way to save it. But as we'll see, not all Gettier cases deal with the future tense. So, so don't worry about that. But you're, you're right that it's a kind of an issue with this example. Alan says, how do we reconcile Rambam's rationality and his 13 articles of faith in epistemological terms? Well, we're going to get back to that when we look at the difference between belief and faith. By the way, some of the, the articles of faith, like that there is one God, the Rambam thought you could demonstrate that logically. But if you demonstrate it logically, then any epistemologist would have to agree that you know that God exists. And that's why the Rambam is very careful. He doesn't say that there's a mitzvah lahamin, shiyesh matsui rishon, that there's a first cause. The Rambam says, yesh mitzvah ladat, there's actually, you are commanded to come to know it. That's a very, very stringent, strident epistemological claim. And the reason the Rambam was able to, to say that is because the Rambam thought that there is enough evidence to warrant the claim that you know that God exists. Your duty is to come and, and um, assess that evidence. And you do that by learning the arguments for God's existence or whatever. Other rabbis, um, and you know, I can't even say that I'm a rabbi when you're talking about the Rambam, but I, I would be somebody who would say, um, it's not clear to me that we have a commandment to believe that God exists. We have a commandment to have faith that God exists. And I, I see those as, as uh, slightly different. Um, and there's certainly Rishonim who agree with me. And, th and therefore the question, the epistemological question will be, um, what is faith? And what's the difference between faith and belief and what makes faith rational? These request questions will come back to you later. Um, Vedat says, isn't the problem that we're considering the statement about why Smith, why Smith believed in this? If we had encoded his entire range of beliefs, there'd be no problem. Yeah, that's right, because he believed something like Smith wouldn't get the job. Um, and, and he didn't believe that Smith had 10 coins in his pocket. Maybe if we kind of assess all of his beliefs, we'll, we'll, we'll somehow solve the puzzle. That's a nice thought. Maybe we'll come back to it. I might not. Um, okay. I'm going to show you the second Gettier case before we look at solutions. And I'm actually going to show you a third case, which is Russell's. Um, okay, the second Gettier case. Jones tells Smith that Jones owns a Ford. Smith has good reason to trust Jones. Oh, what's that good reason? I don't know. Um, Jones has never been found to have lied to Smith in the past. Smith has often checked up on Jones's claims and never found him to be inaccurate. So he's got what logicians would call an inductive basis based on the past, remember, an inductive basis 
to trust Jones. So he's got good reason to trust Jones. Jones says that Jones owns a, a Ford. So Smith believes that Jones owns a Ford and that's a justified belief, okay? However, okay, now, you remember from our first class, those really complicated truth tables. If it's true that Jones owns a Ford, then it's also true that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara is in Barcelona. Why? Because in a disjunction, a sentence with the word or in, only one half has to be true for the whole thing to be true, right? So, Smith believes that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona. Because one of it, it's enough for one of those to be true for the whole thing to be true. And he already has reason to believe that Jones owns a Ford. So he's got equally good reason to believe the second claim that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona. Because the first follows from the second. Good. Jones was lying. Jones has never lied before. So Smith had a really good reason to trust Jones, but you know, completely out of character, Jones was lying. Jones owns a, owns a Peugeot, uh, no Ford. Um, but by complete coincidence, happens to be that Barbara's in Barcelona. Now, Smith had a true belief Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona. And the true belief was justified because he had really good evidence for the claim that Jones owns a Ford. So he had a true justified belief that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona. But do we really wanna say that he knew that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara is in Barcelona when we know that Jones was lying? And that, and that Bob and Barbara was only in Barcelona by chance. Imagine that you're Smith and, you're, and you discover that Jones was lying. You say, oh, Jones, I'm so upset with you. You're a liar. Would you say, but at least I knew that, <laughs> that Jones owns a Ford or Barbara was in Barcelona when you, when you, uh, you know, suddenly discover that, that by chance um, Barbara was in Barcelona. No, you wouldn't say you knew it, right? Um, so in the chat, um, Eddie's pointed out again, what Smith thought to be justification was not. So that's, that's part of the problem. We can't easily doubt that Smith had justification for his belief. Even the belief Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona, he had justification. But what you're pointing out, Eddie, it seems like it's the wrong sort of justification. The justification was tied up to the belief in the wrong sort of a way. We need to, you know, if we want to do epistemology, what we want to know as epistemologists is what is it that takes a belief and makes it knowledge? Okay, and what Gettier is saying is it's not enough to have a true justified belief, you need to say more. And maybe you need to say something about how the justification ties up to the truth. Or maybe there's some fourth ingredient, not just truth and justification and belief, but some extra thing. We'll, we'll have a look in a minute. 
Asaf says, isn't this statement a little bit of a reach? Because you should also follow that there will always be a barber in Barcelona, meaning what does this barb have over other barbs? That yeah, there's definitely some barber in Barcelona, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's also a nice point. And, and the idea is like, your mental state, when you, when a belief is a mental state, when you believe that um, Jones has a four-door Barbara's in Barcelona, it's not tied up to any actual Barbara in Barcelona. There's always a Barbara in Barcelona, but your mental state like isn't, isn't particularly implicated. Um, there's no particular Barbara in, implicated in, in any of your, your beliefs about the residents of Barcelona right now. Um, um, by the way, class, here's, here's a world-renowned philosopher who happens to be in Jerusalem. You've just got to meet Dean Zipman. Um, who's just passing by? This guy. This guy. <laughs> that's, that's what we're <laughs> Thank you. We're we're in um we're at a conference in a philosophy conference in, in the Hebrew University of, of Jerusalem. That's why I'm in Jerusalem tonight, and he really is one of the world's most famous philosophers. So you just got to see him, and he looks, you know, in his cool shirt. Anyway, because philosophers are cool. Um, okay, so so. Uh, that was a nice point uh, about about barbs and, and and the residents of Barcelona. Let me show you Russell's Gettier case. Uh, uh, like I said, it was before Edmund Gettier. You have a watch. You've wound it up. You've got a good. It's got a good battery. At four twenty p.m., I look at my watch. I know it's. I know it's p.m. Not a.m. I look at my watch. I form the belief it's four twenty. Why? Because my watch indicates that it's 420. That's so so on that basis, I form the belief that it's 420. But the thing is, this is Russell's uh, case. What I don't know is even though I took all, I did all due diligence, I wound it up, I whatever it is, I, I've I've treated my watch really well, or I got a brand new battery just yesterday, and my watch has never malfunctioned in the past. But by complete and utter fluke, my watch is broken. And what's more, I was lucky enough to look at my watch at one of the only two times in the day when a broken watch is right, right? A broken watch is right twice a day. My watch is broken, it doesn't move. It's stuck in the configuration that you see on this slide. So whenever I looked at my watch, I would have formed the belief that it was 420. Thankfully, I didn't look at my watch until 4.20. So I have a true belief that it's 4.20. The belief is justified by the fact that I did, you know, I did my due diligence. I've looked after this watch. I haven't been careless with my watch. It's a normally reliable watch. I looked at my watch. My watch told me it was 4.20. So I have a true justified belief. But as soon as I find out that my watch was broken, I'm not comfortable saying that I knew it was 420. I kind of was lucky. I believed that it was 420 and I thought I knew it, but actually I didn't know it. I just kind of luckily believed the truth. That's not enough to be knowledge. That's the thought, okay? So, so one of the reasons I think this example is better than, than either of Gettier's is Gettier takes you from simple beliefs to more complex beliefs. 
he takes you from the belief that that Jones is going to get a job and the belief that Jones has got 10 coins in his pocket to the belief that the man who gets the job is going to have 10 coins in his pocket. That's a more complicated belief. And as someone pointed out, it's also in the future tense. Okay. Um, in the Ford case, you go from the simple belief that Jones owns a Ford, to the more complicated belief, Jones owns a Ford or Barbara's in Barcelona. And maybe we get tripped up when we move from more simple beliefs to more complex belief. But Russell's example doesn't have any of that. It's one simple belief. I believe that it's 420. It's not the future tense. It's right now. I believe it's 420 right now. And yet without any of the tricks or, or, or kind of sleek moves of Edmund Gettier, Russell's given you a case of a true justified belief that really doesn't seem like knowledge. Plato was wrong. Or was he, right? Uh, you know, is there some way to fix Plato? Let's have a look at, uh, I might not be able to keep up with all of the comments in, in the chat box because um, it's becoming a lot, but it's all very good. Well, no. Part of the discussion in the chats right now is saying it's absurd to say that like you can rely on chances for knowledge, right? So if it was 90% reliable, can, is 90% is reliability enough to give you knowledge? Well, I don't know, but it would seem weird to say that it wasn't justified, right? Relying on something that's 90% certain, at least in many contexts, that seems to be justified. By the way, I've just given away something that I wasn't gonna give away, which is that I, I, I have a kind of, particular view about these questions. And I think the words belief and knowledge are, are contextual. So the amount of justification you require depends on context. In fact, the meaning of the word knowledge changes from context to context. Sometimes we're more liberal with what we treat as knowledge. And sometimes we're more stringent with what we treat as knowledge, depending on the context. Likewise, with the word belief, that view is called contextualism. I wasn't going to get in there into it, but I, I, I gave it away. So anyway, you can put that to one side. Um, that's a bit more complicated than I wanted to get to. Certainly, relying on something that seems like it's 90% certain, in most contexts, it would be really harsh to say that, oh, you had no justification for that belief. It was, it was really well justified, right? How many of your beliefs that, you know, rely on something that's like 90% reliable? It's pretty good. Um, so in this case, he's justified in believing it's 420. It's true that it's 420, but he doesn't seem to know it. Okay, so what's going wrong? Well, like I said, in the last century of, of epistemology, um, this has been one of the major puzzles that's kind of taken up most of the kind of the limelight in just discussions of epistemology. Um, Plato said, knowledge requires truth. Plato said, knowledge requires justification. Plato said, knowledge requires belief. What we've discovered, be it via Gettier or via Russell, is that doesn't seem to be enough. And there are two responses we could have. There's actually many more than two, but there are two main responses we could have. One is to play around with this word justified, 
Yeah, but what exactly do you mean by justified, right? What counts as justification? What sort of justification? Maybe not any old justification would do, but you need a special gold standard of justification before we can call it knowledge. Maybe that's going to help, but you need to tell me what that gold standard is, okay? Um, or maybe there's some fourth ingredient that will that will kind of uh, um, complete the picture, and that won't allow for these counterexamples, these Gettier cases, uh, that as they as they're called. Um, and I hope you can understand perhaps more readily than you did in the metaphysics class. I hope you can understand why religious people are people who take certain beliefs very centrally. And the question is, you know, if we're asking what counts as good justification, right, that seems like a very important thing for religious people to have thought, to, to thought about, okay? Uh, you know, what would a gold standard of justification be? Okay, um, fine. One route you can go is to add a kind of a clause, and I suppose this is like this is like a fourth ingredient, maybe. Um, and it's called we talk about defeasibility. Um, and the claim is something like this: knowledge is a true belief that's justified, but it's only justified where there are no defeaters for the justification. What's a defeater for a justification? Well, let me try let me try and explain it this way. If the belief is true and justified, then it is knowledge. If and only if there are no facts which, had the subject known them, would have defeated their justification. Right, and this is kind of similar to this point someone made earlier about we need to think more globally about what else does the person know, what else does the person believe. We also need to think about what else does the person not know. Right, so in the first Gettier case, what the person didn't, a very important thing that the, 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 the subject didn't know was the boss was going to change his mind. Had he known that the boss was going to change his mind, that would have defeated the justification he had for his belief that Jones would get the job. So there existed a defeater for the justification. Smith just didn't know that. And it's the existence of the defeater which meant that Smith, Smith's true justified belief wasn't knowledge need a true justified belief without defeaters. And again, we can be wrong about what we know. We can think we know things when we don't. We often, you know, I, I, I thought I knew you, right? I thought I knew this until I learned otherwise. We can be wrong about what we know. Keep that in mind. What's gonna make the difference between a true justified belief and knowledge is whether there happen to be any defeaters out there. And that's why we're so often, that's why we can so often reasonably doubt whether we really know. I have all sorts of true justified beliefs, right? I believe that, um, that I'm not in The Truman Show. Have you seen that film, The Truman Show, where everyone around him was just an actor? I believe that I'm not in The Truman Show. Now let's imagine that that belief is, is 
you know, is true. And let's imagine that it's justified. It's justified by, you know, all the, you know, the implausibility or whatever. But let's imagine that um, there is some, I don't know, crazy maniacal uh, television director who, who has been trying ever since I was born um, to capture me and put me into a Truman show. He never succeeded, but he was always trying. If I knew that such a person existed, I might feel much less confident that I'm not in the Truman show because I know there's someone out there try, you know, trying to change things all the time. Um, and that should already make me worry. What my worries is, okay, I, I've got a belief. I think it's true. I think it's justified, but is it knowledge? Do I know it? Because even if it's true, I might not know it because there may be things I'll come to learn that will show me that the justification I currently have isn't actually all that good. Take Russell's case of the watch. He believes that it's 420. It is 420. He was justified in believing that it was 420, but he didn't know it. He didn't know it because there was a defeater. The defeater was the fact that his watch was broken. And had he only known that his watch was broken, it would have defeated his justification. The justification was merely that he looked at his watch. It would have undermined that justification. It would have made that justification inert or impotent. So, so that's, one, that's one mainstream view that's emerged in the last 50 years. Knowledge is true, justified belief without defeaters. Thing is, there can be defeaters to defeaters. And there can be defeaters to defeaters to defeaters. <laughs> so let's imagine that, you know, um, the watch was broken. Had Russell known that the watch was broken, he, would, he, he wouldn't have trusted his justification. But actually what Russell didn't know is that even though the watch was broken, there's a special angel that God has appointed to this watch to make sure that even when it's broken, it supernaturally keeps telling the time accurately. Right. So there's a defeater to his justification, but there's a defeater to the defeater. Right. So like it's like you can you can have these kind of regresses. And it's because of that, um, as they say in the Gemara, sometimes ain la davar sof. There's no end to this. Some people think this actually isn't the right way to because the, the definition is going to have to be. If the belief is true and justified, then it's knowledge, even only if. There are, there are no facts which had the subject known them would have defeated their justification if and only if there are no uh, further facts that had the subject known them would have defeated the defeat of the justification if and only if and, it could, and the definition will become infinitely long the definition of knowledge okay so it's a bit of a worry maybe you can fix it somehow uh, um, you know I leave that to you in your future careers uh, as philosophers uh, but here's another option uh, this is Alvin Goldman and he comes up with the following claim. He says, look, it's not enough for a belief to be justified. The belief has to have been caused directly or indirectly by the fact that the belief is true. Okay. How did Smith come to, come to believe that the man who would get the job had 10 coins in his pocket? The thing that caused him to believe that wasn't the fact 
that Smith would get the job and that Smith had 10 coins in his pocket, which was the truth. It was the, it was, it was the falsehood that uh, Jones would get the job and, um, and the truth that, um, that Jones had 10 coins in his pocket that caused disbelief. The belief has to be caused by the actual fact that makes the belief true. If the belief is caused by the actual fact that made the belief true, then we can say the belief is knowledge. And again, sometimes, you know, you can be mistaken about this. You can think that your belief was, was caused by the way the world is, but actually your belief was, so, you know, uh, I think Tokyo is the, is the capital of Japan. I've never been, so it might not be, but I, I believe it. Why do I believe it? Well, because every map I've ever looked at says that Tokyo is the capital of Japan. Everybody I've ever asked told me that Tokyo is the capital of Japan. Every documentary I've ever watched about. But the thing is, why did the map say that Tokyo is the capital of Japan? What caused the cartographers who drew the map to, to note down that Tokyo is the capital? So I'll tell you what, what caused them to, to write that down on the map? What caused them to write that down on the map was that Tokyo is the capital of Japan. And that's what caused them to write it on the map. And that's what caused all those documentarians who make documentaries about Japan to say that Tokyo is the uh, 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 capital of Japan. And that's why everybody who ever went there told me the cap that Tokyo is the capital of Japan. So there is a causal chain that comes from the fact that Tokyo is the capital of Japan all the way to my mental state. It was a long causal chain. It goes through map makers and documentarians and people and testimony, and, but it, it goes all the way back to the fact. So ultimately, what made me believe that Tokyo was the, the capital of Japan is the fact that Tokyo is the capital of Japan. That fact plays a causal role in my coming to the true belief. So if you happen to believe that something's true, like you woke up with a hunch, but that hunch wasn't caused by the fact it was just caused by some random chemical fluctuations in your brain, then you can't have known that I was in Jerusalem. But if I called you up and told you I was in Jerusalem, then you could have known it. Why? Because if you trust me, what you're assuming is that um, my telling you that I was in Jerusalem was in some way or other caused by my being in Jerusalem. Because if I wasn't in Jerusalem, I wouldn't have said that I was in Jerusalem. So again, you came to believe I was in Jerusalem uh, um, via my testimony is really to say you came to believe in, that I was in Jerusalem through a long series of, of causes that, that ends in the fact that I was in Jerusalem. So the fact caused your belief, therefore um, it's knowledge. Uh, um, if indeed it's knowledge, I might be lying by the way. Right. Okay. And you can't, you can't know. And that guy might not have been a philosopher. He might have just been the janitor uh, of my, of my mental asylum. You, you know, none of this, none of this, uh, you know, but it, if it's knowledge, uh, it's knowledge because I'm telling you the truth and your beliefs um, have in part been formed through a long causal chain that bottoms out, that ends in uh, uh, the fact that indeed you believe. Okay. Um, and there's a second claim that Goldman makes. It's not enough that the truth in question had to have caused your belief. You actually also need to be able to reconstruct that causal chain. Because otherwise it sounds kind of lucky, right? You say like, um, why do you believe that Tokyo's in Japan? 
Oh, because my mum told me. So what? That's not enough to make your belief justified. Oh, because my mum's generally reliable. What does that mean? Right, and why does that justify your belief? Oh, it's because what it means for some to be generally reliable is they only say something if it's true. Right, and then, and then basically what you've done is you've given me an entire causal chain. It must be that there's some truth out there in the world that caused your mum to say what she said, and you believe what she said because she said it, and therefore you believe, uh, you know, so, so it's, it's not enough to say that you have knowledge unless you somehow are capable of in your mind reconstructing that causal chain. Um, that's a very strong demand because you could say, yeah, but I don't, there's loads of things I don't understand about causation, right? I don't understand my brain chemistry. I don't understand, you know, loads of things along that chain. And that's why Alvin Goldberg, I think adds a further criterion. It's called reliabilism about justification. The idea is, you, when you say your belief is justified, that means, according to Goldman, that you formed it using a process that is generally reliable. What does that mean? You, you, you formed your belief using a process that much more often than not yields true beliefs. And if you can explain to me, right, the process that you used, and if you can tell me why you think it's reliable, then it's then it's likely that that you know i'm doing a bad job of explaining this let me try one more time it's asking too much for me to ask you like sinner you you know you know that sam is in jerusalem how do you know it i want you to reconstruct the causal chain god it's going to be really hard to do that right because the causal chain goes right down to atoms and molecules. Causal chain, right? We've got to talk about the, the sound waves moving from your mouth, for, sorry, from my mouth through uh, the computer into your ear. The causal chain's really hard to describe, right? Every single stage along the way, you'd have to know computer science, you'd have to know like brain science, you'd have to know, or, you know all sorts of things to describe the entire causal chain. So Goldman says, no, you don't have to be able to describe that. You have to be able to tell me in broad terms, what was the kind of strategy you used to form your belief? And if you can tell me what your strategy was, your belief forming strategy, and if you can convince me that you've used this before and it's and it always, you know, you know, it, it has proven to be to be a reliable strategy, then that's enough. You don't need to actually spell out every single step along the causal chain. So the strategy is something like, I relied on Sam's testimony to form the belief. You could explain that strategy to me and you could probably explain why you think that's reliable. I think it's reliable because Sam's given me no reason to believe that his testimony in the past, give me no re reason to believe that his testimony is, um, you know, 
untrustworthy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you believed uh, um, that you had heard me say Sam is in Jerusalem because you, you find that your ears are reliable, right? And you've got reason to believe your ears are reliable if um, you're starting to doubt your, your hearing um, you might feel less confident that you, you know, about the things you believe from testimony, because there's always a chance you misheard. But at the moment, you're trusting your You could explain to me the strategies you used. You could explain to me, you, you know, you could you could make a claim that that these have have proven to be reliable in the past. That's enough, says Alvin Alvin Goldman. You don't need to spell out every single step along the causal causal chain. But ultimately even though what we mean by justification is you use kind of reliable strategies, ultimately what makes knowledge knowledge is that you used a reliable strategy and the truth is what caused your belief. So it's two things, okay? He goes back to Plato and says, ah, uh, let me tell you what, I'll tell you what we mean by justified. Justified means reliable strategy true justified belief means true belief formed with a reliable strategy and still goldman says but that's not enough for knowledge plato needs a fourth ingredient and the fourth ingredient is that the truth had to actually be part of the cause if you're coming to believe what you believed if you've got all of that then you've got knowledge now after coming up with that definition of knowledge Alvin Goldman by the way he's a colleague of Dean Zimmerman they're both at Rutgers University and Rutgers University is rated to be you know in the top three philosophy departments in the world and Alvin Goldman is is one of the reasons why Rutgers is rated so remarkably highly he was he was voted as uh, in a poll of 200 professional philosophers across the world Alvin Goldman was not numbered one or two, definitely in the top three. <laughs> You're saying Sam and testimony, reliability. Definitely in the top three. He was rated in the top three living philosophers uh, by, by a poll of, of 200 uh, professional philosophers. Um, he's a really remarkable guy. Uh, after coming up with this kind of definition of knowledge that's supposed to kind of be Gettier proof, he also came up with a massive, massive objection to his own, <laughs> um, uh, to his own solution. I'll come back to that later. Let me just show you a different one, a different solution to the problem. We looked at defeasibility. Okay, defeasibility is true, justified belief is knowledge as long as there's no defeater. But then we were worried about defeaters for defeaters, defeaters for defeated defeaters, and so on and so on. So we looked at Goldman and his reliabilism and his claim that um, um, the strategy needs to be reliable and the truth needs to have caused your belief. Here comes Nozick. Robert Nozick was a, a, another great Jewish philosopher in, um, in, in Harvard at, the, at the, the, the latter half of the 20th century, died in around 2003, I think. Uh, fa famous for political philosophy, but, but everything he touched his hand, put his hand to was, was golden and he did a little bit of epistemology. He, he says the following, your belief that P counts as knowledge if it meets the following, oh, but, but, sorry, before we go to, to Nozick, let me just explain how this picture gets away from all the problems. Let's go to Russell. Russell's case was the strongest, was the strongest case for re the reasons I explained. So 
the reason it wasn't knowledge for Plantinga is that even though the belief was true, it was 420, and even though the belief was justified and it even has Goldman justification, because he used a strategy that is generally reliable. It is generally reliable to form time beliefs based on looking on your watch. It is a reliable strategy. So Goldman would say, fine, it was a reliable strategy, good strategy, it was a justified true belief. But the thing is, the fact that it was 420 is not what caused Russell to believe that it was 420, because the watch was broken. Are you with me? If the watch, you know, if the watch wasn't broken, then the, then the fact that it was 420 would have been the reason that the watch looked the way it did. And the way the watch looked is what caused Russell to believe that it was 420. And therefore, the truth of his belief would have been the cause of his belief. That would have made it knowledge. But because the watch was broken, even though it was justified because his belief formation strategy was reliable, he didn't know that it was 420 because the truth of the matter the fact that it was 420 wasn't actually what was causing him to believe that it was 420. So that's how Goldman um, gets out of the Gettier cases. Okay, Nozick. Nozick has this definition of, of, of knowledge. Your belief that P counts as knowledge if it meets the following requirements. P is true. So far, so Plato, right? P is true. You can't, you can't know that P if P isn't true. So one, it needs to be true. Two, in close possible worlds where P is still true, you believe that P. In close possible worlds where P is false, you don't believe P. What is a close possible world? Okay, let me explain what he means by that. A possible world is something like this. Some way this world could have been. Now, there are many ways that this world could have been. I could have been in Netanya tonight. I could have been in Haiti tonight. I could have been, you know, with Jeff Bezos orbiting the Earth tonight. And all of those ways the world could have been is what we mean when we talk about a possible world. What do we mean by a close possible world and a distant possible world? Well, some possible worlds are almost identical to our world, but you've just changed one thing. Some possible worlds have more differences in. The more different the possible world is from the actual world, the further away it is. So we measure the distance between the actual world and a possible world by how many things in the actual world would you have to change, so to speak, to arrive at that possible world? Are you with me, right? So like, um, the world in which I'm in Netanya, that's a really close by possible world. Nothing much would have had to have changed. This conference would have had to have been canceled because of Corona. <laughs> you know, not, very little would have had to have changed. But for me to have been orbiting the world with Jeff Bezos tonight, you'd have to change a lot of things because I don't even know Jeff Bezos, right? And, and he's, not orbit he's not in space tonight. He was in space yesterday or whatever, right? You'd have to change a lot more. So that world is further away. 
Okay, so we can talk about worlds being close, worlds being far away, possible worlds. Now says Nozick, you believe that P, in close possible worlds where P is still true, true, you believe that P. Okay, so let's take Russell, Russell's case. Russell believes it's 420, all right? He qualifies on one. P is true, it is 420. He qualifies on two as well, because in close possible worlds where it's still 420, he still believes that it's 420, because in close possible worlds, his watch probably isn't broken, right? If you don't change very much, change very little, he's still gonna believe it's 420. But the thing is, it, it fails three, because in close possible worlds where it's not 420, he still believes it's 420 because his watch is still broken. In close possible worlds, his watch is still broken, but find me the closest possible world where it's not 420. In the closest possible world where it's not 420, his watch is still broken, right? So his belief would have been false in all of those worlds. And this notion that Nozick's come up with, he calls it truth tracking. Your belief is truth tracking if when you're in a, a close possible world, here's, an, here's another world famous philosopher, Israeli philosopher. Um, anyway, this, you, this is like more than, not, this is more than an introduction to philosophy. You're getting like, it's like a philosophy safari that you're on, right? You get to, you know, seeing us in our natural habitat. Um, okay, so um, what Nozick calls this is truth tracking. Is your belief sensitive? To, and it's, it's actually very similar to Goldman saying truth has to be a cause of your belief. But it's, but, but it's similar to Goldman, but in a sense, it's more general. It's not that the truth has to actually have directly caused you to believe what you believe. It's just that your belief needs to be sensitive, such that if you woke up in a very close possible world where your belief was false, you'd stop believing it. Okay. And if your belief has that property, that truth tracking property, and it's true, then it's knowledge. And if it doesn't have that property, that truth tracking property, then it's not knowledge, it, it might be lucky, right? Like Russell's belief was lucky. Okay, what we've done is we've seen at least two really good answers to the Gettier problem. Uh, modern epistemology has been rescued by Nozick and Goldman. You could go the Goldman route. You could say that there needs, the truth needs to cause your belief in order for it to be knowledge. It's not just truth and justification and belief. There needs to be this causal relation between the truth and the belief. And if there isn't that causal relation, then it's not knowledge. Or you could go the Nozick route. You could say the truth has to be, the belief has to be truth tracking in order to be knowledge. Either one of these responses and there are various reasons why you might prefer one over the other. Either one of these responses gets you out of all of the Gettier cases, the three of them, the two that came from Gettier and the one that came from Russell. But in one last slide before I move on to the faith and belief issue, just briefly. Fake Barnes, the story continues. Alvin Goldman came up with the following story. You're driving through 
some area in this one, okay? And you look at one and you form the belief, oh, there's a barn, okay? You used a reliable strategy, it's true. The barn being there is what caused you to believe it, right? So it meets gold, all of Goldman's requirements for being knowledge. So you know there's a barn, okay? You walk past a barn, you saw the barn, your vision is reliable, the barn's being there is what caused you to believe it. So you know there's a barn. Here's a defeater. What you didn't know is there's a very strange type of alien, okay, that has invaded this area of the world. And they've got this weird fetish for building fake barns. What's a fake barn? Well, a fake barn is, is like maybe like um, a two-dimensional painting of a barn that's propped up. It looks just like a barn, right? Uh, but it's just a painting of a barn propped up. And what you don't realize is you're walking right through the middle of this area that they've invaded and populated with hundreds of fake barns. Now, luckily, the one you happen to be looking at is the only actual barn in the region. So you do have a true belief. It's a true belief using a reliable strategy, okay? And the belief you had was caused by the fact that there's a barn there. But we still wanna say you were so lucky because there's actually a hundred barns in the vicinity that are fake. And you happen to be looking at the only uh, actual one. And if you came to know that, I think you'd realize that this was perhaps too lucky to be called um, knowledge. Um, Goldman really worried about this and therefore, you know, he's, that's why he's still employed as an epistemologist because this is the thing he now needs to solve. Um, um, and, and actually even Nozick should worry about this because there's a sense in which the belief is even truth tracking because in the closest possible worlds in which that barn isn't there, he doesn't believe there's a barn there. So it's a truth tracking belief. And yet it's, it doesn't seem like it's knowledge, not at, at least not unless he knows uh, about all these fake barns, which, which would have and should have caused him to worry and doubt. Um, I'm not gonna try and solve the fake barn issue. I'm just trying to show you that the story continues, okay? Uh, epistemology is a very, very difficult, frustrating area of philosophy. We're really interested in what it is that makes a belief knowledge, what it is that makes justification, what it is, sorry, what it is that makes a belief justified, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and, and in fact, some people are so frustrated by the field, a little bit like me, say, there's no such thing as knowledge and there's no such thing as belief. In every single conversation, it actually means a slightly different thing, belief and knowledge. Uh, um, you, you need to tell me everything about the context of the conversation, and then I'll tell you what belief and knowledge means. It's constantly fluctuating. Um, that, that's a more radical escape from these puzzles. Uh, that's called contextualism. We're not gonna get into it today. Um, I'm gonna soldier on because I think the next part of the talk, and we really don't have many slides on this, the, the next part of the talk, I think, is more relevant to us as people of religious conviction, okay, which is what's the difference between faith and belief if there is a difference. And there are two main accounts these days. There's what's known as the belief plus account. The belief plus account says 
that, well, hold on a second. If you have faith that something is true, it means you believe it. And some other stuff, like it's not faith if you don't want it to be true, right? Um, I believe that um, the pandemic is far from over. But I don't have faith that the pandemic is far from over. <laughs> far from over. Over. Why? Because I don't. I don't want that to be true. I believe it's true, but I don't want it to be true. So one of the things you need to add to belief to get faith is something like desire. So maybe belief plus desire, or belief plus emotional investment of some sort. Maybe that's what faith is. But whatever the, whatever the extra ingredient is, faith requires belief. Even the belief plus account can explain that Rashi we spoke about. The reason God is happy with Abraham isn't because he believed in God. It's because Abraham was emotionally invested in what he believed. He had faith, not just belief. Belief plus something else, okay? Um, something that was more revelatory of, of Abraham's character. Now, the reason the belief plus people think what they think is the following. They say, if faith didn't include belief, your prayers would be insincere and your religious rituals would be deceptive. You sure, you sure as heck look like you believe in God with all those mitzvahs you keep doing. That's deceptive of you. How deceptive of you to keep behaving as if God exists, right? Um, how insincere of you to be praying and crying as you pray if you don't believe? So faith must include belief. Otherwise, it would be kind of insincere or inauthentic. That's what those guys say. For various reasons, I think they're badly wrong, but I'm not going to get into, um, I'm not going to get into taking sides so much as laying out the views for you. The other major account that's, that's on the table today is called the non-doxastic account, which means the non-belief account. Doxastic is just another word for belief. Orthodox, by the comes from the same root, right? A, con a conformity of belief, having the same beliefs. The non-doxastic account says, no, 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 no. You must be able to have faith that something is true without quite believing it. Why? Because faith can survive in the presence of doubt in a much more robust way than belief can. Sure, if you have tremendous doubt, then you might say that you're going through a crisis of faith. And that might be an indication that faith can't survive months and months and months of chronic doubt. But it can survive, <laughs> you know, while it's in crisis, it's still there. The diaries of Mother Teresa are a really interesting resource in this debate because she seems to have prayed very, very often for the gift of belief in God which is a weird thing to pray for, because if you don't believe in God, why are you praying to God for belief in God? I mean, you don't believe in him anyway. What's going on in that sort of... She would confess her lack of belief in God to her confessor in the Catholic tradition that you go to go and confess your sins. Do we want to say that now this came out, her diaries were only published after she, dead, she died. Do we say, ah, ah, that Mother Teresa, what a fraud. Right? What a fraud that Mother Teresa was. You didn't even believe in God. 
praying for belief in God and confessing that she didn't even believe in God. Well, the, the non-doxastic account want to say, no, 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 no. She had faith even though she doubted. In fact, that's what made her faith so impressive that, that she soldiered on through the doubt. Okay. And that's the non-doxastic account of, of faith. So what is faith then on the non-doxastic account? Let me just give you one version of a non-doxastic account of faith that I think is really beautiful. Um, I've, I've endorsed something very similar to this in my own work. This comes from a, a Christian philosopher at Western Washington University called Dan Howard Snyder. He's not here in Jerusalem this evening. Um, and he says, uh, you have faith that P if and only if the following conditions hold. One, you have to have a positive evaluation of P. What does that mean? It means you have to think that P is the sort of thing that would be good for the world, right? That's why I don't have faith that the coronavirus uh, is far from over because <laughs> that's not the sort of proposition even though i believe it it's not the sort of proposition that i think would be good for the world if it were true so one of the conditions of having faith is that you need to think that this thing would be good for the world but more than that says howard Snyder, you need to think it would be good for you right you have a positive connotative attitude towards p it's just a, a posh way of saying you need to think it would be good for you now he comes up with a counter example of a woman going through agonizing pain, Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, through cancer treatment, agonizing pain. And it's got to such a stage that she no longer cares if she lives or dies. It's just too agonizing. She no longer cares if she lives or dies. But because she wants to be there for her children, she wants to survive. So it's kind of like all things considered, she wants this to be true for herself in a kind of indirect way. That's enough for Howard Snyder. But there's some sense, even if it's a kind of roundabout sense, you can't have faith that P is true um, unless um, you think that in some sense or other, it would also be good for you, not just the world, but for you. It's kind of deep faith is, because the, the, the idea he's getting at is deep, faith is deeply personal here. The third condition, and this is what makes it a non-doxastic account, is he says you have to have a positive cognitive attitude towards P. What does that mean? What he means is you have to have some degree of confidence that P might be true. Doesn't mean you believe it, but it definitely means that you don't disbelieve it. You don't think it's false, right? You need to think it's possible. T.S. Eliot said, and I hate to quote this because I think it was dead, dead wrong, but he said, he thought Christianity was the least ludicrous of all the options. He thought atheism was ludicrous, Hinduism was ludicrous, Judaism was ludicrous, Christianity was ludicrous. He thought they were all ludicrous. But on his judgment, Christianity was the least ludicrous. Well, is that enough to say you believe it? Right? <laughs> you think it's the least ludicrous, but you think it's ludicrous? No, but it might be enough to have faith. That's what Dan Howard Snyder means by a positive cognitive attitude towards P. You have all of all three of these things, a positive evaluation of P, a positive cognitive attitude towards P. You have to have a positive cognitive attitude towards P. And your attitude to P has to be resilient, he says, to be, to be, to be considered faith. Let me just say this. We can now understand how we say on Rosh Hashanah, the whole ma'aminim, right, shahu, 
right? Shahu, Tov, the Hasid. I think I can't remember all the, all the things we say about him. We say all these lovely things, right? Well, of course we are. Yeah, I, I used to worry about that. Am I lying? I'm singing that song, and I know there are loads of people in Shul who don't believe in it. There's only people in Bet Knesset, Bet Knesset who don't believe in it. How can I say the whole man when I, I see all these like these people who are Mechalel Shabbat, the Fahesia in the community behind me? No, you don't. Well, that's if you translate Mamenim as believe. The faith. I bet if you asked most of them, at least at that moment, wouldn't it be nice? If a God of love and charity, chesed, mercy, really did exist and really will make sure that in the end, the good are rewarded and the bad are punished. Wouldn't you like that to be true? Don't you think, you know, they'd say, yeah, good for the world, good for them. Do they think it's definitely false? No. Are they gonna change their minds about any of this? in a whimsical way, probably not. They have faith, at least, at least according to Dan Howard Snyder, they have faith. Could it be stronger? Yeah, because you can dial up the cognitive attitude. They could want it more than they want it. You could dial up the cognitive attitude. They could believe it more, right? They could, they could be more confident that it's true, not just hope, but they could come to believe or come to, so their faith could be stronger than it is. They still have faith, right? Um, so, so then the question becomes like, whose side are you on? The, the, the belief plus account? That, that you're a joker if you say you have faith, but you don't really believe. Who are you kidding? Faith is belief. Sure, it's got some other stuff that you also need to believe. And if that's the case, then the Yud Gimel Karim of the Rambam is asking for a lot. If, if, if Emunah means belief plus. Or... Uh, maybe you take the non-cognitive view and say, no, faith is not belief. Those things are different. Indeed, that's why Abraham can be praised, according to Rashi, for having faith. Because faith tells us a lot about Abraham. Right? It tells us about his, his evaluations of the world, his, his cognitive attitudes, the alignment of his heart. Um, but also his ability, perhaps, to go through dark nights of the soul and soldier on, even sometimes when it's not clear to him. Indeed, in that particular verse, right, where he says, he's been told he's going to have a kid, but how old is he? <laughs> like, how much evidence does he have? Sure, it's possible, because it's God, right? But how probable? Did he believe? I don't know, but he had faith. Okay, so I've kind of given you my view, because I've made it quite clear that I quite like the Dan Howard Snyder view. Now, I actually want you, to, I also want to be clear, I believe that God exists. I don't just have faith. Uh, I think the evidence for God's existence, the cumulative evidence is very, very strong. And therefore I think we can have justified belief that God exists, okay? But faith that God exists is less demanding. Okay? Even if you don't agree with me, even if you think that, oh, Sam, you're just wishful thinking. There's not enough evidence. Might still have enough for faith, okay? I believe. But, you know, some people don't. Um, and belief might not be what's necessary. Faith. Anachnu maminim b'nei maminim. Anachnu b'kahala maminim. Right? Um, anyway, so that's epistemology for you. Take some questions. Um, um, and then uh, that's it. Okay. Thank you so much.
Oh, 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 just one little thing. We're not going to get into it, oh, but I've written a little please. bit about Pascal's wager, right? Pascal's wager is this famous thing. Um, should you bet on religion even if you don't believe in it, right? Should you like, oh, take a take a punt on religion? It's something I've written a lot about. I have my own Jewish version. I call it Baruch Paschalberg. I actually I actually argue that in a Jewish context. I'm sorry, that was so Ashkenormative of me to make it uh, Baruch Paschalberg. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. Baruch ibn Pascal. Uh, uh, maybe that would have been um, uh, better. Um, Baruch ibn Pesach. That would that would be good, wouldn't it? Right. That's the Sfardi one. Okay. But but um, I, I actually think in Jewish context, Pascal's wager is much stronger. If you're interested in that, you can look on my website. I have an article there under my academic articles. The article is called Pascal Pascal Berg and friends. Uh, uh, but that's also an area of epistemology that might be relevant to you. But that, okay, that really is the end. And I hope what you've got through this course is a sense of um, the main areas of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, logic, as well as that ethics stuff that we didn't get to touch. And also I hope in each one of the, the, the classes, we got to see the ways in which thinking systematically uh, about these topics and, and truly being guided by the contemporary literature, largely written either by non-Jews or by non-believing Jews like Alvin Goldman and Robert Nozick, can be of use to us in our avodat Hashem, in our pursuit of, of that great mitzvah, which I, I believe is one we can fulfill as codified by the Rambam of Dashi Matsui Rishon. But that includes, that requires some logic, some metaphysics and some epistemology. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so excited to review this. <laughs> because I think there's a lot to take in. Uh, yes, I threw a lot at you there. When Rabbi Dweck, uh, you know, he, he's shown how in all the classical sources, Emunah is translated as faithful. Yeah. Where yeah. in Masachat Berachot, a, a businessman is to have Emunah. It doesn't mean that he should have faith. It's that he should be trustworthy. Faithful, trustworthy, exactly. Nahon. Nahon. Indeed. So uh, right. thank you very much for that. I do My think pleasure. we should take the, a lot of the questions on Discord because I believe it must be midnight You're right. now. You're right. So, it's uh, six past midnight. Oh my gosh! I went on really. I went on on and on. I was time flies when you're having fun. Listen, it was great. I mean, I'm glad you went on. It was fantastic. Um, I'll be. I'll be. I will be available on Discord if it takes me some time. I'm really busy at the moment, but I do read. There's one email still in my inbox from somebody. Um, I, I do tend to respond as quickly as I can, but sometimes, especially if um, if the question stumped me, will take a bit of time. But 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 I really appreciate and value. The feedback and the questions. So, so yes, Discord is Discord's a good address. Thank you very, very much. There are another two hundred and fifty people, forty people that will be viewing this, so you might get a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much again. It was great thank to you. have you for the last few shirim. And as I've said, we we've, we've got many more things for you to come and. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was my honor. And again, uh, Shoshana Bat Miriam should have an aliyat neshama. Amen. Thank you very, very much. Everybody, good night. Uh, there's no Shi'ur on Monday with Diane Kada. Um, Rabbi Dweck's new series begins next Wednesday. So um, we'll, we'll fill you all in on Discord and the WhatsApp group again. Hacham, good night. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. And uh, can you just repeat your website again one more time for everybody? Yeah, it's, it's www.samlebens.com. And Liebens is L-E-B-E-N-S. It's and not Ibn Liebens? Not even living, oh, not even shame. even livings. No, but it's um, you, you and 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 there is a section on the website where where I post all, 
pretty much all of my academic articles, you'll be able to find the stuff on Pascal. Okay. Brilliant. Fantastic. Right. Thank you. Take see care, you very man. soon. It's not a goodbye. It's a see you later. I look forward to it. Take Thank care, everybody. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Bye.